Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation with Claire Lehman, where we're asking, does the online media landscape help us seek the truth or win the fight? If you missed part one, I really encourage you to press pause, go back and have a listen as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. We all feel like we're, 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 we're affirmed in whatever social media bubble we're in. But my, my industry where I'm situated now has right-wing group think it, it can be quite oppressive it, you, you wouldn't believe this but during covid some of our audience got very upset with me because i was pro-vaccine and now we have on the couch with claire lehman enjoy What I'd like to do, as we do in the principle of charity, to look at the strongest points of the other. And so much of Colette has been built around the struggle against political correctness Mm -hmm. uh, of the progressive left. Yeah. What would you see as the three strongest arguments uh, in favor of political correctness? Okay, so a big one is sympathy. So... I think a lot of political correctness is driven by a very noble sentiment of sympathy for those who are suffering and for those who are harmed or need care. Uh, it's the, driven by the moral foundation that Jonathan Haidt would describe as care. And I'm a mother. I mean, I, I understand what sympathy and care is. I have little children and, and you do want to look after them, particularly when they're distressed and they're upset or they have been hurt or harmed in some way. And it's understandable that a culture would want to look after its most vulnerable members, and I think a culture should look after its most vulnerable members. It's just that there comes a point where looking after can sort of shade into coddling or enabling, and that's the problem that Mm. we get into, I think, Mm. where... There can be too much care, too much uh, uh, sympathy mm. and or not too much sympathy or that the sympathy might not be doing the person. You know, if you've got a teenager and they don't want to go to school or they don't want to sit their exams because they're anxious, I mean, as a parent, you have to figure out, is this going to help this child if I let them not take their exams because they feel anxious? Is this going to help them in the long over the long term? So you can as a parent, you're constantly having to juggle these trade-offs. You want to care for your child. We also want to push them so they succeed. Uh, so I think sympathy is a huge driving force of political correctness, and I think it's a noble one. It's just that I would argue sometimes we can have too much sympathy or mm. that 
the dose can be too strong. If sympathy and care was was one of the strongest arguments, what what would the second be? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely a valid argument that language changes over time, and that language that we used decades ago is is no longer used for just out of practical reasons, just out of uh, everyday like habit. It's and, and you know, and we have to accept that language is a living it's a living organism and it changes over time and we can't just rail against change like some you know in in a reactionary fashion we have to accept that change is always going to happen Mm. so i think that's another reasonable argument for political correctness let me stay with the concept of charity for the moment and you know when you were chatting to Emil you spoke a little of the experience you've had around misogynist abuse some of the Mm -hmm. trolling you may have had around the vaccination uh, issue where do you believe people have been most uncharitable to you outside of just those two areas I mean is there is there is there a theme is there an area where they just instinctively rejecting you as Claire Lehman, and they just being uncharitable. It's it's funny, you know. I've been called a Nazi so many times, both from people on the left and the right. Yeah, I want to come I, back to the Nazi <laughs> allegation, by the way. I know where to begin. <laughs> I think you know the abuse from the right is more salient to me because it's more recent. But and that some of that was really unhinged. Like I got death threats just for telling people overseas that we didn't have concentration camps in Australia Mm. during COVID. So, I mean, some of that stuff was really discombobulating because people actually believed, like I got so many messages on social media accusing me of defending things that were not happening. So it was discombobulating because it was apparent that people, particularly in the United States who are following certain influential media figures, they had such a warped concept of what was happening in Australia, completely divorced from any empirical reality. It was I didn't know where to begin to argue with these people because it was like arguing with people who thought that, you know, there were unicorns flying in the sky or something like that. It was it was such a strange experience. Whereas I've been attacked, you know, attacked and criticized by people on the left, but that's more over perceived moral deviance as opposed to like just not living in the same reality. How does the private Claire Lehman cope? I mean, what do you, when you, when you at home, how do you cope with this stuff? I mean, not the public Claire Lehman, yeah. which is I have to do it. There's a journalistic view. I've got a political ideology. There are going to be many Claire Lehmans who are experiencing what you experience. And what we want to create in this show is constructive debate. What we don't mm-hmm. want is people to withdraw. So right. how, yeah. how do you how do you cope with this hurricane of abuse? There's ways to engage and there's ways to withdraw at the same time. So it's it's perfectly I think you can put up a barrier around yourself by writing essays, writing articles, publishing content, but not necessarily engaging too much on social media. Social media is where the the craze where the crazy stuff happens. Mm. People who want to get angry for fun are not going to read a 3,000-word article. And so you can, you can certainly express yourself and, enge- in, and engage in thoughtful debate uh, through long-form sort of content production, mm. such as mm. doing this podcast or writing an essay. 
but it's this it's the short sort of angertainment that I'm with I've withdrawn from and have I you have you withdrawn from that are you are you are you now not on Twitter my avatar is on Twitter but it's not me <laughs> I have an assistant who posts uh, from my account uh, and, and so that's the kind of barrier I have to put up I, I just don't want to see the abuse um, but it, there's a more there's another reason it's because you know, it's not just abuse. You can be just can have your thoughts distorted by getting a lot of flattery at the same time. Mm, mm, uh, mm. It's a process called audience capture. So if you if you're constantly putting out one type of content or constantly criticizing, you know, one thing, and you're rewarded for that over and over again on social media, you can actually become a distorted version of yourself. And so I'm trying to put up more barriers against audience capture than what I used to. Okay. Can, can I come back to your comment about, you know, the allegation at times of you being a Nazi, et cetera. And yeah. I think one of the great conflicts or one of the conflicts you've been in was with Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And I, I don't know if you read the article that uh, Joshua Hochschild wrote in, in the magazine First First Things. I, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read out an excerpt. and then. But I wanted to ask you a question around public debate. But I think just for the listeners, uh, this may just give a quick summary. But please correct me if you think he's, he's incorrect, just on some of his brief summary. But he starts off and he says, Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Claire Lehman seemed like natural allies. Both are contrarian, entrepreneurial free thinkers. But recently, Taleb started calling Lehman names on Twitter. Lehman had defended behavioral genetics, especially claims about intelligence, that intelligence is measured by IQ testing, is genetically based, and correlates with success in life. Taleb has extensively criticized all three claims. They exhibit some of his core themes, misuse of statistics and the difficulty of prediction in complex systems. And now he warned Lehman to distance herself from the fraudulent field. But as I understand, then there were sort of subsequent or exchanges on Twitter where you sort of suggested he was an unscientific hand waver. He called you a charlatan, a neo-Nazi, having a neo-Nazi agenda and so forth. And I wanted to ask you, Claire, do you think progress in ideas is not only dependent on open debate, but on formal civility? So Quillette has often defended free speech and, of course, free speech is a foundational principle to liberal democracies, but increasingly I've become aware that free speech only really happens within parameters where civility exists, either naturally or because rules are in place. Hmm. And without rules or norms for civility, you don't have free speech because it just becomes a situation where the loudest shouts over everybody else. And that's the situation on Twitter where you've got the hard left and the hard right shouting over everybody else and maybe there's some Russian bots hanging out in the corner, right? It, it, people in the middle, people who are moderate and who actually want to think about ideas and discuss them get completely shouted down. And the issue with Taleb is I actually respect Taleb a lot and I agree with mm. probably the majority of what he says. I disagree with him about behavioral genetics. You know, he, it, it's true. He is an example of a, of a brilliant person who, you know, he, he would be able to collaborate with a lot of people and, and engage in a lot of projects if he 
just toned down the incivility just a little tiny bit. Mm. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I think civility is in, incredibly important. And, and on reflection, how, how would you engage him differently now? I just wouldn't engage at all. So, so, so yeah. you, you, would, you would withdraw? Yeah. He's been described by uh, a researcher called Phil Tetlock or maybe he might have been Tetlock or someone else as an intellectual terrorist. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean he's wrong. I mean, I mean, he's wrong about some issues, but he's right about a lot of others. And, that, and that's the thing about prickly personalities. Just because someone is prickly doesn't mean their ideas are all bad. And I do, I do respect him a great deal. For his output. So when we look at disagreement, a lot of the view around conflict and polarization is, you know, social media has a massive contribution to play in that. If we ruled out social media as a variable, we just took it out. Don't, don't yeah. even think about it. From an evolutionary psychological point of view, what is the reason for disagreement? Why do we struggle with it so much? Oh, wow, that's a big one. Well, I mean, fundamentally, we have different ways of viewing the world and we're, we're born with different temperaments and different traits and, the, and our, our traits and temperaments and our personalities mean that we see the world differently and we experience the world differently. And a lot of politics, a lot of political disagreement is just about getting other people to see the world the same way that we do and, and we get upset when we are unsuccessful. And, and you know, there are competing moral goals and moral visions and they're you know i'm of the view that we don't have all the answers so we have to try and sort it out and 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 get different ideas but then Mm. obviously other people are of the view that all of the important moral questions have been answered and that people like us are being sinners for for not getting just on board with what's right and what's wrong and even just discussing it so yeah. yeah. And, and and just on that note, Claire, just let's stay with the psychological reason for the moment, bearing in mind your discipline. I mean, is there any work on why some people get cancelled and some people don't? I mean, wh- why is Barack Obama not cancelled? Uh, why, you know, are his views on gay marriage earlier on when, for example, you know, he went against gay marriage probably, yeah. when was it, 1998, 2004, you know, he was certainly supporting of civil unions and civil rights, but he defined uh, marriages between a man and a woman. I mean, why why do some people get cancelled and not others? Well, Barack Obama is incredibly powerful and uh, I, I think cancel culture stops at the level of, of power that he has. Um, but, no, it's a good question because it, it, it's inconsistent. Cancel culture is very inconsistent. Some people seem to get cancelled for minor infractions while other people seem to get away with uh, much more serious. What's the best view on the differing standards around yeah, being cancelled? Yeah, so it's performative. I mean, when people, when people are cancelling someone, they're not, the goal is not to actually, in my view, the goal is not to harm that individual or, take, or remove that individual from society in as much as it is to perform your moral values to your in-group or your tribe. So it's if you log on to Twitter, you'll see someone getting cancelled every day and it's because that person said something egregious on Twitter that day or, you know, there's some opportuni- opportunistic kind of, uh, there's, there's an opportunity to, to hoist this person up uh, and as a scalp. 
but it's a performance that people do to their tribe, their in-group. It's not so much about that actual individual, uh, getting that individual to repent or anything like that. It's if I'm cancelling you, it's because I want to show off to my friend who's over there how moral I am. And how so there's a little bit of moral virtue signalling. Exactly, yeah. And it's not so much about you, it's about me and how I can advertise my moral credentials to everybody else. And so when you look at virtue signalling and you go, well, there's a lot of damage in that, but equally I could say, you know, there's a lot of damage in social media, but we would never want to give up the internet um, yeah. if we looked at the costs and benefits of it. Right. You know, and there's clearly damaging dimensions around virtue, virtue signaling. But isn't virtue signaling at least, uh, you know, it's got more benefit than cost? Yeah, I would say so overall. I mean, we all want to be virtuous individuals and we all want to get along in a society. It just can get out of hand. <laughs> and the, the issue about cult, cancel culture is, is it's how it becomes disproportionate people are punished for, for often for very minor sins and they can be severely traumatized or even lose their jobs it's it's not that they haven't done anything that is worthy of some kind of correction it's just that the punishment is overly severe Claire we you know we've had a podcast uh, around race and race identity What's your view on diversity training? Well, I, I, I just am aware that there isn't very good evidence that it does anything at all. And my concern would be that there could be a backlash. So, I mean, I, I come from a school of thought where if you're going to, in, to stage an intervention, such as a diversity training, then you have to measure it well. So you'd have to run an experiment where there's one group of people getting a diversity training and another group in a placebo condition to compare the outcomes. And if there's no significant benefit, then you don't run the intervention. And now there's also a possibility that the people in the experimental condition will have some kind of backfire effect. Now, my problem with diversity training is that it's often implemented without the proper controls around it in terms of measuring its effectiveness. So we don't know how effective it is. And then often the people administering it or the, uh, the whole industry around administering it doesn't even acknowledge the possibility of a backfire effect. Now, that's just unscientific to me. And so that's why I would be opposed to it. However, if there was some kind of intervention that did promote more tolerance for diversity, it was effective and it didn't have a, any backfire effect, I would be in favour of it. Right. Related to that, how do you see preferences? Do preferences ever become prejudicial or are they just part of the psychological makeup of, of a person? Preferences for? Prefer for example, people have preferences just to be with certain other people. Uh, you know, you'll often hear the sort of cliches, those are my people. You know, I walk into that party and I just feel comfortable and so you know i live with certain people i choose to go to those neighborhoods i stay in my little bubble i mean is there ever a point where that can be seen as prejudicial oh of course absolutely like as a woman i'm if i'm walking down the street down a street and there's no lights and it's dark and i see a male sort of walking the other way i'm going to feel like a little bit nervous or anxious mm, mm. Uh, until you know we our paths cross and I don't feel like there's a threat anymore and that's just natural that's just part of my inbuilt psychology the problem is that 
the problem would be that I don't let go of that feeling and I hold on to it and then I'm prejudiced against all men in every situation. That's bigotry, right? But in in uncertain environments where we don't have much information about a certain person, it's natural and automatic for us to just rely on our uh, natural our innate heuristics. And, you know, we, we all have these heuristics whether we like to admit it or not. Um, but it becomes bigotry when we don't update uh, according to new information. When we get, when we meet the person, we understand that they're a friend or, you know, another citizen and not, they're not going to, uh, there's no, there's going to be no problem. So we, we all have these mental shortcuts and, but we become bigots when we rely on them too much and don't update according to new data or new information that's coming in. Yeah. Just going back to, you know, reflections on yourself, is, is there any woke criticism of you that you think has been valid? As I've become more familiar with the American right and particularly the, the movement associated with Trump and the Make America Great Again movement, the populist right, it's not that I have ever defended them, but I may have had a blind spot when mm. it comes to the toxicity that that movement has on society. I mean, it's difficult for me because I'm not American. Yeah. I don't have to deal with, like I'm not in America and I don't have to deal with their partisan politics, so it's easy for me to ignore it. But I am the editor of a magazine that has an international audience and I, for a long time I avoided the issue of Trump just because I felt that, there were enough. There was enough commentary on that topic, but with hindsight, I think that that was probably a mistake, and I probably had a blind spot. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so I suppose there was a view maybe that Quillette were targeting much more of the left than the right. Yeah, and I and I should have balanced the criticism more evenly, definitely, and I, I think that's a valid criticism. I've really struggled with this issue of how people change their minds. So mm -hmm. you give people dissonant information, they will frequently, in fact, become more hardened. Yeah. But at some point, that dissonant information just becomes too much and then they do change their minds. Yeah, yeah. Have you got any views about how you change people's minds? I heard an interesting statement, I think it was by Jonathan Roche with Steven Pinker on the Think With Pinker podcast and it was something like to get people to change uh, their mind about a particular conspiracy theory, it helps to get them to want to agree with you. Yeah. So that means listening to them, making them feel comfortable and welcome and, and, and actually offering up some friendship so that the person wants to agree with you. And I think you know, people do change their mind when information comes from a trusted source, someone that they like and want to be friends with. And so, mm. and we know that whenever we have family members that we disagree with, it doesn't, it doesn't work to just go and bash them over the head with information and scientific mm. papers. We have to sit down and talk and listen to people. And obviously it's difficult to do at scale, on mass, we can't sit down with every individual and talk to them and be patient and kind. But uh, you know, developing trust is is an definitely an important step in 
you know, in fostering some kind of fostering some kind of dialogue and and helping people to change and helping ourselves to change. On that note, when you think about yourself, what are you working on to get people to be more charitable to you? So when they disagree, you know, what what are you doing to get them to to listen to you more? I I don't mind if people disagree with me, actually. So I'm writing for the Australian at the moment on a weekly basis. And when I see criticisms, I often take them on board and Mm. will change, not change my point of view, but change how I express my point of view. And uh, so I wrote an article about woke jobs, how I think that there's too many woke jobs and they're too high, highly paid compared to jobs like teaching or nursing. Give us, an, give us an example of a woke job. Like a diversity and inclusion consultant in some kind of bank or government uh, department will be on six figures, whereas the cleaner who's cleaning their office is getting paid $26 an hour. And I think that's unjust. I think that we shouldn't be giving – it's not that we shouldn't have diversity and inclusion consultants but just because you have a degree I think doesn't necessarily mean that your labor is inherently more valuable than someone who works with their hands that's just a point of view of mine anyway criticism I had for that article was that I used the word woke too much and I think that's a reasonable criticism Mm. because people don't necessarily know what that term means it's a bit of a um, you know it's a bit of a right-wing term where you know, all sorts of different things can be lumped into it. It's it not can precise. be seen as judgmental. Exactly. It's not precise. It's not conducive to effective communication. I think that was a very valid mm. argument. And so in my next article, I'm not going to use that word. I'm going to use more pre- precise definitions mm. of mm. what I mean. Mm. Beautiful. So I don't, I don't try and shield myself from criticism because criticism helps improve my work. Yeah. Claire, thank you so much. Um, I've so enjoyed your self-examination, your self-reflection, your honesty. I, I, I Honestly, I don't know how you uh, deal with being in the public square of abuse. Um, you know, uh, you know, amazing. Uh, but I, I really enjoy the fact that you've been incredibly honest uh, during Thanks. this time with both Emil and I. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. No, I appreciate being on. It's been really enjoyable. Nice chat. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.